Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening received his undergraduate degree in philosophy from Regis University in Denver. Dr. Wunsch pursued his graduate studies at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, in Rome, obtaining baccalaureate, licentiate, and doctoral degrees in philosophy. Don't ask me for a definition of those degrees. Teaching <laughs> <laughs> at Christendom College since 2005, Dr. Wunsch has served as Associate Professor of Philosophy, Academic Dean, Director of Rome Academics, and Chairman of Philosophy. Having traveled throughout the country and internationally lecturing on various philosophical topics, Dr. Wunsch has been a regular speaker and Magdala Apostolate Professor for the Institute of Catholic Culture. It's a delight to have you with us, Dr. Wunsch. The floor is all yours. Thank you so much, Andy. And, and good evening, everybody uh, who is act the people who are actively participating here. Those of you who I cannot see right now who are passively participating, welcome. Uh, let's, let's begin in prayer. I'm going to pray on this occasion the prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas before study. I may then also move into a Hail Mary as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Creator ineffable, who from the riches of thy wisdom didst appoint three hierarchies of angels, and didst array them in wondrous order over the highest heaven and who didst apportion the elements of the world most wisely. Do thou, who art in truth, the fountain of light and wisdom, deign to shed upon the darkness of my understanding the rays of thine infinite brightness, and remove far from me the twofold darkness into which I was born, namely sin and ignorance. Do thou, who givest speech to the tongues of little children, Instruct my tongue and pour into my lips the grace of thy benediction. Give me keenness of apprehension, capacity for remembering, method and ease in learning, insight in interpretation, and copious eloquence in speech. Instruct my beginning, direct my progress, and set thy seal upon the finished work. Thou who art true God and true man, who livest and reignest world without end. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seated wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. And St. Catherine Drexel. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Uh, well, let's get out of the gate here, okay? I'm going to be using throughout uh, our experience, uh, I'm going to do my best to make use of this whiteboard I have to work with. And so I will present to you uh, here uh, the outline for today's lecture. Okay, so prayer, check. Uh, we, we check that box here. Uh, I'm now going to turn to what I'll call the goals and method. Uh, the goals for our experience of the course of these three weeks uh, and reflect a little bit on the method by which we hope to attain those goals. Uh, I'll then transition very briefly into a short, short kind of background reflection on who this Aristotle guy was, uh, where he came from, and a little bit of a, kind of a general reflection on his philosophy. And then we are very shortly going to transition into the discussion of book one of his Nicomachean Ethics. And then we'll have our little break uh, before transitioning into, after the break, our reflection on books two through 3.5, his reflection on virtue in general. So that is where we're going. Uh, that is our outline for today's lecture. And so without further ado, okay, let's speak about the goals for our time together. I would like to pose as our first goal, uh, the goal of pondering richly the nature of human thriving. A little spoiler alert, okay, the Nicomachean Ethics is committed to a single topic. It's committed to a reflection on what it means for man to thrive. Okay, so we're all humans by nature, but we all do not necessarily thrive by nature. Uh, his work is committed to detailing what it takes to live a life of flourishing, a life of thriving, what he would call a life of happiness. This is the whole theme of the work. Uh, and therefore, my first goal would be for us to obviously ponder the nature of human thriving in a rich way and in such a way that we become oriented to thriving in our own personal life. Uh, I, I don't want to make this a kind of heady endeavor uh, where we're kind of growing in certain kind of intellectual knowledge of the practical wisdom of Aristotle. Uh, but the whole purpose of practical wisdom is for the sake of living well. And so one of the goals here will be to try to encourage in ourselves through the study of Aristotle to try to incorporate, if you will, his thought into our lives. Uh, Aristotle mentions that the reason it takes until a kind of ripe old age to become a master of moral philosophy is because we lack experience. It's experiential wisdom in the world that allows us, as we'll discover later this, this, this evening, to be able to find the virtuous mean in every action we perform, in every emotion we feel, in every context we face in life. And it takes a life of experience to be able to prudentially discern how exactly we can act in a moment uh, that will be conducive to our overall thriving. And so we have to be attentive to our lives and use our lives as the background trough of experience from which 
we can perform our scholarly endeavor of reflecting on the moral life. But then there is a kind of cross-pollinization here. Uh, there's a symbiotic rapport between our life outside of our reflection and then the movement from our life reflecting on morality to actually incorporating it into our lives. And so, uh, as I imagine uh, this is true of you, my life is stressful. My life is busy. Uh, I look around at the world and, and it's easy uh, to fall into a state of melancholy, a state of discouragement in many respects. And yet the joy of reading a work like this is it, as, as the great Christian philosopher Boethius said, brings to us a kind of consolation. Uh, we are called to return to ourselves, to a proper understanding of our nature and our end. And in reflecting on this, uh, what ends up transpiring and what is transpires every time I commit to reading a great work like this is I'm lifted out of my own pettiness, my own sadness and, and, and forced okay, to ask the questions I need to ask so that I can make the hard decisions that have to be made to maybe let go of those goods that can never provide for my full happiness and striving and to cast out into the deep, to try to live, as he says, this life of complete virtue, which he holds to be human happiness. And so the first goal will be to ponder happiness richly, but in such a way that it orients us to thriving in our everyday life, okay? Uh, the second thing I, I want to do is to, even more than teaching content, Okay, I want to uh, work with you on developing what I'll call philosophical habits of mind. Okay, I want you to develop skills, skills of reading a work of perennial importance in a way that is conducive to your learning, uh, to develop the skill of asking the right questions and of looking for the answers in the right way. Uh, in other words, I want to develop in us a kind of philosophical habit of investigation, which allows us to derive universal conclusions from particular experience and to learn how to read well, to learn how to reflect philosophically. Because at the end of the day, my guess is we will all forget a lot of the particular content of what we discuss here. But my hope is that you will learn certain habits that, as we'll discover later in, in the second hour, habits that stick with you. They become firmly rooted dispositions in your soul that you will take with you into your life and then can assist you in other intellectual endeavors, other philosophical endeavors and in your life in general. And so hopefully we will learn some of those philosophical habits that you can take with you. Now, the third goal is I still want to learn some content. OK, we're going to learn some things about Aristotle. We're going to learn some things about what he has to say about happiness, what he has to say about virtue in general uh, next week, what he has to say about what a life of virtue looks like, what he has to say about a variety of moral virtues that pertain to our actions, that pertain to our passions. What does what is man who is fully thriving look like? Uh, well, for Aristotle, he has this cornucopia of ordered habits that allows him to act right and feel right in every situation. 
He is liberal. He is magnificent. He is courageous. He's temperate. He's gentle. He's witty. He is truthful. He is friendly. He is just and he is prudent. And I want us to reflect deeply on the nature of these virtues, the vices that oppose them, and how we can, through reading this text, grow in all these virtues so that we might live well and thrive and become the man of complete virtue uh, that Aristotle uh, tries to direct us to become. Okay? Uh, And so hopefully we'll learn a lot along the way. And, And then finally, in our third lecture, we'll reflect deeply on friendship. Okay? The role friendship has and the contemplative life in allowing man to fully thrive, okay? Uh, So hopefully we'll learn and and we'll be able to retain some of what we learn for future intellectual endeavors and moral decisions. And finally, I want to inspire wonder, okay? Now, what is wonder? Uh, Wonder for, uh, for Aquinas, he defines it as the desire for knowledge. Aristotle and Plato said this is the original, if you will, philosophical attitude. You know, what inspired man to do philosophy in the first place is wonder. And what I want uh, us all to do, and this goes for me as much for you, is to be born anew in wonder. Okay. Uh, now, what is implied? Wonder is a desire of knowledge. What would it look like to be born anew in wonder? Well, wonder as a desire for knowledge. Okay. Uh, it obviously implies a couple things. It implies knowledge itself. Okay. You cannot wonder. There is no desire where there is no knowledge. Okay. You cannot desire something of which you are totally ignorant. And so we have to know something in order to be inspired to wonder. Okay. Uh, That's what happens with little children. You know, they, they say, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. By seeing a star in the heavens, we are inspired to inquire into its nature into what makes it shine as it does in the heavens. And so in this class, I hope we will grow in knowledge. And as we grow in knowledge, we are able to proportionally grow in wonder. As we learn more about philosophy, we have and develop new questions. The more we learn, the more we will see the horizons of our ignorance and stretch our minds into those horizons. Because it might sound paradoxical, but the person who knows best his own ignorance is the person who knows the most. Because the person who sees the most truths about reality is able from the perch of his massive, comprehensive understanding of reality is able to better look into those infinite horizons of his own ignorance. Because at the end of the day, okay, God is the fullness of being. And the more we know, whenever we know, we know some aspect of reality. The more we know, the more we see of that fullness of being. Uh, And so that should keep us humble, uh, but keep us yearning to push into those horizons. Okay, and so at the end of the day, at the end of the class, you'll probably, if things are going right, have more questions at the end than you do at the beginning. And that's a sign that you have been born in wonder. And the beauty of this, okay, is that the more we know, the more we understand reality, a reality that has its origin in God himself. And as it's said in Aquinas, that God's glory is reflected better in the totality of the hierarchical created order 
with its myriad of different beings. That reflects better the grandeur of God's infinite nature than if he had just created one great angel. And so as we understand more of the width and breadth of the moral life, we simultaneously get a better window into the breadth and width of God, okay, from which all reality and all truth is ultimately rooted. Okay, and so those are our goals. Okay, now what is our method? And I want to get you know, very quickly into the text. So very quickly running through this. What is going to be our method? We are going to spend time with Aristotle himself. He's more or less going to be our teacher. We're going to try to remain faithful to the text itself every now and then, because this is the Institute of Catholic Culture. We'll reflect a little bit on what our faith has to say. Uh, what maybe theology, uh, moral theology, and, and, and other sources of revealed truth have to say about what we can know about truth by way of reason. Uh, so we'll follow Aristotle's method here. We'll try to pursue truth by reason and try to understand the morality of human behavior, what we can understand about it by way of reason and by way of being obedient to what our, our text is saying. Okay, and so we'll try to read that and, and only occasionally take time to reflect on it within a larger framework. Okay, and so we'll try to be obedient to that. And, and we're also going to uh, hopefully have a little bit of dialectical engagement. Obviously, I'm going to be lecturing primarily because we don't know each other uh, yet, but I am going to take time uh, to engage you. And so we can create something of a little bit of an intellectual community uh, because I think it's in that dialectical engagement that we can really grow. Now in my classes, sometimes I run them as complete seminars. In some of my classes, for instance, Catholic culture, there's even more of a chance because the class is longer uh, to have that kind of dialectical engagement. We're trying to cover the whole of the Nicomachean ethics. And therefore I'm obviously gonna have to not only pass over many exciting things here, but there may not be quite the same opportunity to kind of dialectically reflect extensively on uh, just a few passages of this work. But nonetheless, I am going to involve you. And so your proactive engagement will, I think, buoy uh, the, the uh, buoy all the ships of everyone else uh, who is a part of this. And the health of this body, this intellectual community, uh, is going to come from the proactive uh, thriving of all of our members. Okay, uh, And so I'm not going to be doing all the heavy lifting myself. But I expect you to do the reading and to reflect on it collectively. And if we say things that are silly, we don't understand exactly what Aristotle's saying, well, then that's just another opportunity for humility and another attempt to grow in knowledge and be reminded that we are not the divine mind, but are in pursuit of knowing the divine mind. Okay, so there we have it. Okay, that's our method. Those are our goals. And now let's get into the text by way of the most cursory, okay, reflection on the background of Aristotle, okay? So our friend Aristotle uh, was born in 384. Uh, he's born in Thrace. Uh, he's the son of Nicomachus. Uh, it's theorized that this text was either named after his father or named for Nicomachus, which is also the name of Aristotle's son. Uh, in any case, his father was a physician, which may affect a little bit of the empirical interest of his son, Aristotle. Uh, who was very much interested in empirical sciences, uh, but but he was born into a kind of noble family. He spent from age uh, around age 17 to age 37, he spent at Plato's Academy in Athens. 
and he always remained uh, profoundly affected by Plato, his mentor. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, even though Aristotle will eventually deviate from certain aspects of Platonic thought, especially his moral thought, remains deeply embed, uh, uh, indebted uh, to his master. Now, at Plato's Academy, Aristotle was called the mind of the Academy. Uh, and, and the Academy actually ended up being turned over uh, to Plato's uh, nephew, with whom you know, Aristotle did not have a great relationship. And so it was at that moment that he moved on from, from Plato's Academy. He went on to teach uh, the, uh, the young Alexander the Great, okay, famously. He went on to eventually found his own school, the Lyceum, uh, which had slightly different interests than Plato's Academy. Uh, but that is more or less a kind of a rough outline of his life. And to speak of, and this is a very beautiful quote, since we're reflecting on ethics, to speak to the indebtedness of, Pla of Aristotle to Plato, uh, I found in a little history of philosophy a, a very nice uh, reflection on, on what Aristotle had to say about his ma master, uh, actually, in fact, when Aristotle was uh, eulogizing uh, his master at his death. Aristotle said the following. Plato is such a man whom bad men have not the right to praise and who showed in his life and teaching how to be happy and good at the same time. Okay, what a beautiful thing to say about his mentor. And so that thought is very much uh, influ influenced uh, our, our, our friend Aristotle. And we're going to, to see and to spend time getting to know what is distinctive about Aristotle's thought uh, by way of, of his principal work uh, in ethics, his ethics, okay, which is more or less the class notes okay, that have come down to us from posterity. Sadly, much of Aristotle's work has been lost, actually, to history. Uh, some people think, ah, oh, his, his stuff is kind of dry and what have you, uh, unlike Plato, who wrote these great dialogues. Uh, but it's not really fair. Aristotle allegedly did write dialogues that have now been lost. He did write in verse, which has been lost. Cicero praised his poetry. Okay, uh, but sadly, all that has come back to us are uh, his his class notes. Uh, and yet, within these notes uh, lies a wealth of insight. And because these notes come to us in a scholarly setting. It's true that they abound in certain technical terms that take a little bit of a, a little while to become familiar with. But the upside is it's presented in a kind of ordered package. All of Aristotle's thought that we find in his collected works uh, it has a kind of architectonic structure. It all is kind of systematized and relates, uh, uh, is related in, in a kind of organic way. And so there is, to his thought in general, a kind of order, and to his thought in particular, a wonderful order that is conducive to our learning, okay? And so let's begin to explore that order uh, and explore this great work, one of the most influential works in human history, his ethics. Okay, so without further ado, let me ask you this question, okay, to get out of the gate. What are you expecting? Okay, when you read a treatise on ethics. Okay, so I want to reflect a little bit of what is distinctive about his way of doing ethics that becomes very clear right in the first chapter of the first book. Now, what would you expect in general 
for a philosopher who is committed to studying about ethics? Okay, first of all, maybe even what what do you think ethics is about? Okay, having read this and having obviously studied, maybe some people have taken classes on it. What should we expect ethics to be about? Well, let's take a comment yeah, from one of you. Well, what's ethics about? Go ahead, Teresa. Yeah. Finding the good end, finding the best end, and orienting yourself towards that. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's a very Aristotelian answer. Okay, very Aristotelian of you. So to find the, the good end, you know, what, what a good life is, to find maybe even man's ultimate end. Uh, so that we can work toward that end and thrive. Okay, that was kind of a very Aristotelian reflection. Uh, what else do you, would you expect uh, in a treatise on ethics, which it would seem deals with the morality of human behavior, okay, is what I would probably say, uh, all kinds of ethics, deal with the morality of human behavior. But they don't all deal with the morality of human behavior in the same way. Uh, and so we don't find right out of the gate a reflection on law, okay? He's not giving to us a bunch of laws on how to live a good life. There's no kind of series of aphorisms, but instead his ethics looks at man as a kind of thing that is oriented developmentally to a kind of end which dictates this end all of man's behaviors. So his way of looking at man is what we might call teleological, okay? Teleological, okay? Might write down that word at the break and come back to it. Uh, the word telos is, is the word for end. And so his whole reflection upon human morality, the morality of human behavior arises from his analysis, okay? of human acts which are always directed to an end, which is considered to be some good, and ultimately to some good that is final. And so his ethics are directed to understanding human behavior as oriented to some end, okay? And, and, and therefore, he's, he's committed to looking at then morality from that vantage point. A good action will be one that is conducive to the right end. A bad action will be one that prevents man from attaining the end that is entailed in his thriving. And everything is kind of understood through that lens. Okay, so let's take a moment to see how this emerges from the text. Okay, so let's see what he says. Every art and every inquiry, and similarly, every action and pursuit is thought to aim at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. Okay, so what is he saying? Okay, he seems to be saying something to this effect. Okay, that the only way to explain how man acts, okay, is by looking to what he aims at, okay? There must be some end that ends up motivating his behavior. And the only ex reason, okay, man gets off his duff 
and does anything is because there is some delectable good that motivates him to do so. And so the ends for the sake of which we act are, he says, goods. Okay, They are themselves what we might call simple goods. Now, in order to not fall into a kind of equivocation here, he doesn't mean that man only acts in a morally good way. No, instead he's saying that whenever he acts, he acts for a purpose. And that purpose he finds in some delectable good that motivates him to act. And so the way in which the good in this case, okay, is being understood as that which is desirable. The good is that which is desirable. And so when he says the end of every action is a good, he's saying something like what is good is, is like mom's pasta, okay? Mom's pasta isn't morally good. Okay, when we say mom's pasta is good, we say it is something that is good in the sense that it is delectable and able to then motivate us to pursue it. Okay, and so the end is the first principle of practical reason. Okay, is the way the scholastics put this is whenever a man acts, he acts because there is something sufficiently attractive that motivates us to act. And so before Aristotle is explaining anything about the morality of human behavior, here he's explaining behavior itself. The only reason anything acts is because something good and delectable motivates us to act. Okay. Now, what is the next distinction that he's making? Okay. He, he makes the first distinction in this first book, which is very important, that we always and only act for an end. The second distinction that he makes here is that some actions or arts, okay, which are another kind of practical activity, are sought for the sake of some other end. And so some of the acts that we perform, some of the goods that we act for, actually are not self-explanatory. Okay, Why we act for them can actually only be explained by some other good to which they are subordinate, okay? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if our destination, okay, is to get into town, getting into town explains every single other decision you make along the way. Those subordinate decisions to turn right and not left, and then right and then not left, and then left and not right, as you try to make it to the grocery store, we find that whatever good we are ultimately acting for explains the attractiveness of every decision we make along the way as we pursue that ultimate end. And so he says, we always act for a good. And yet some of the goods for the sake of which we act derive their attractiveness from some, if you will, higher good to which they are subordinate, okay? And this is true in our actions, and it's even true in our practical arts of, of doing things. For instance, 
it is only for the sake of health that we develop medical technology, okay, to better bring about health. No one would be developing certain kinds of, of technical equipment, okay, to bring about health if health wasn't the motivating principle, okay? It's in order to make people healthy that we can explain the existence of, of uh, uh, certain arts that are involved in producing devices and, and that are conducive to man's health and thriving, okay? So we get from that first uh, chapter, the first uh, book, that man always acts for an end, but some of the ends for the sake of which he acts are subordinate to other ends, and the very attractiveness of the goods that we act for can be explained in relationship to those other goods that what those goods we act for are subordinate, okay? Now you might wonder, and this is what he brings up in the second chapter, can this, these goods for the sake of which we act, can this chain of goods go on forever? And let's see what he has to say about that, okay? He says at the beginning of chapter two, if then there is some end of the things we do, which we desire for its own sake, everything else being desired for this sake. And if we do not choose anything for the sake of something else, for at that rate, the process would go on to infinity so that our desire would be empty and vain. Clearly, this must be the good and chief good. Okay, so what is he saying? there? It would seem that he's saying that we always act for the sake of the good. And many of the goods we act for are actually desired because of some other good that is more foundational. But this desiring of goods for the sake of other goods cannot go on interminably. And therefore, there must be some good, okay, that is chief, that is not, as subordinate goods are, both an end and a means to other goods. But there must be one good that is only end and not means. And how does he prove that? He proves that by saying, because man acts. Because man acts at all. His activity could not be explained unless there was some ultimate chief good for the sake of which we act. Why? Because as we already stated, every subordinate good derives its attractiveness from the goods to which they are subordinate. And therefore, there would be no reason for acting if that those goods went on in turn. And therefore, there has to be one good that is a chief good, that is an end and not a means that gives attractiveness to every other good we pursue. And so then he says, will not knowledge of it have a great influence on life? Shall we not, like archers who have a mark to aim at, be more likely to hit upon what is right? And so this is what the rest of this book is about. Really the whole ethics itself, but especially this first book, is about trying to discover what is that chief good that motivates our action? Because if we want to live well, we better figure out what it is. 
so that we can direct our sales to it as our end. Otherwise, we have a danger of going off in a direction that is not conducive to our thriving because it's clear that it's only in a chief good that man can derive his happiness. A partial and imperfect good can only give him a kind of imperfect happiness, but a chief good can afford him with the happiness that can only be enjoyed by being sated by a good which is perfect, a good that is complete and lacking in nothing. And it's that good that we're going to be looking for over the course of the next half of this hour, okay? Uh, and so let me just say in by way of summary, I know because you're here this night that there was something that motivated you to be here, okay? That's what Aristotle is saying, is that whatever you do, there must be something delectable for the sake of which you act. But many of these things we do, we actually desire because of other goods. So I desire maybe to participate in the Catholic culture because I want to learn something about Aristotle. But I want to learn something about Aristotle, okay, so I can develop a kind of knowledge that will lead to me uh, increasing my awareness of uh, what is the human good, what is human flourishing. And so I want to know Aristotle to, uh, who knows, enrich my overall philosophical knowledge. I want to enrich my overall philosophical knowledge so that I am able to live well. And so we always act for these ends. But ultimately, we act for something that is chief, something that is final. And this explains everything we do. Okay, just as getting to that destination in town explains every turn you make along the way. Whatever good is that chief good, whatever we determine it to be, that will have an enormous bearing on every decision we make the rest of our life. And so let's take some time to reflect on what that chief good might be, because as we'll discover, Though we all desire and affirm that it's happiness, it is not clear what happiness is and in what good our happiness consists. And so to say it's happiness is what Aristotle calls a platitude. And we need to put some meat on the bones and discover what is that chief good that can lead to our thriving. And it's in pursuit of that question that will begin our second half hour. Okay. Excellent. So Take there care. we go. Okay. Uh, I look forward to doing that with you in just a moment. We are just getting warmed up, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Uh, we are just getting out of the gate and we'll be flying here after the break. So strap in, get some water and I'll see you in five minutes. And that's when we'll really take off. For those who are hanging around, just a couple comments. This idea of wonder, that Dr. Wunsch touched on. Part of the struggle in developing a sense of wonder for us is because we're kind of told, we're, we're presented with this view of the world that everything's already all figured out. And there's really no point in looking backwards in time to discover new information, but rather we should just focus primarily on what is emphasized in our modern age, which are hard natural sciences. And it is 
you 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 get filled with this sense of excitement and breadth when you realize that not only is everything uh, not already all figured out, but when we look back in time to ancient writers like Aristotle, like Plato, we don't find someone with a naive and simplistic view of life, but we find actually quite sophisticated thought. In fact, probably more sophisticated than we're used to. And all of a sudden, we're like, what? Did we go in a time machine? You know, what is going on here? And uh, then you start to ask, well, whoa, what kind of stuff do these guys write about? How do they think of all this? I mean, they didn't have the tools that we have, uh, and yet they were able to develop really intricate uh, bodies of work. Uh, there's, If you want to explore that kind of theme, and this is a good point for me to mention, sort of core themes that will come up tonight will point you in a direction uh, if you'd like to pursue those on your own, we have talks that are in our library that carry those themes and go off and explore little, you know, other paths. When you go back to the writings of this time period, you you are reading someone who is writing filled with a sense of wonder that hadn't died off at that time. And so it's very uh, fresh. You read it, it's kind of contagious. So we talked about in the first hour, okay, a little, obviously, the goals, the method for the class, all these things. But we also delved into some of uh, the first few chapters here of his ethics. Now, one of the things I, I want you to look for as we look through this text is to try to look what is this section about. The whole text is about human thriving. And what does this book contribute to our understanding of human thriving? What is this chapter? How does it relate to what the book is trying to show? And it would seem that book one is committed to reflecting on the human good in general. And so that's what he's doing here. Now, to understand the human good, we have to understand that man always acts for a good, some desirable good, and that some of the goods we desire are subordinate to other goods. And ultimately, there has to be a chief good that explains the attractiveness of everything else we do. And how do we know that? Because man acts. And because all those other goods would lose their attractiveness if there was not some good that was only an end and not a means. But now we have to be in pursuit of what that good is, that man is oriented to, that in enjoying this good, he might fulfill and thrive in his nature. So we'll be looking for that. But first, I want us to give a little attention to what is said in book three. In book three, he is really the first three chapters are more like kind of introduction to the work largely. And he makes a few distinctions here that, that we have to, to mull upon very, very briefly. Okay. So one of the first distinctions he makes, and again, I, I might even test you guys out to see how, how well kind of we're, we're doing the reading here. So I do want to do my best here to incorporate you into this, this and make it even more of a discussion. So in that first significant part, the first kind of paragraph, if you will, the very beginning of book three, he makes a distinction about the kind of, if you will, certitude that is attainable by way of our moral reflection. He says, in each class of things, we can look for just as much precision 
as the nature of the subject permits. And so what is the degree of precision that we can expect to gain by way of moral philosophy? Did you get any insight into that? Any, anyone? Okay. Well, he's saying that the degree of certitude is not, okay, going to be the same kind of certitude we find in other subjects, okay? Uh, we cannot, it says, it's evidently foolish to accept probable reasoning from a mathematician and to demand from a rhetorician scientific proofs. And so one of the things we get actually from this third chapter is the kind of truth we can find is certainly true, but it's open to, as it says at the top of that chapter, much variety and fluctuation of opinions. And where does this come from? It comes from the fact that when discussing moral matters, though there can be universal truths that are discovered, in moral matters, we can never abstract entirely from place and time and the individual moral actors who are acting within the context of a myriad of circumstances. And so because of all the circumstances that weigh on our moral decision making, it's difficult to come to a perfect certitude regarding moral matters. Whereas when you abstract entirely, okay, from the particularities of time and place, as you do in geometry, as you do even in natural philosophy or even metaphysics, you can expect a higher degree of certitude. But in the practical branches of philosophy, in ethics, in economics, in politics, there is something called moral certitude. We can come to conclusions that are universal and binding, and yet the degree of certitude, because we always have to connect our moral reflections to time, to place, uh, and to all the ways and exigencies and ways in which all circumstances affect our moral decision-making, uh, there is always going to be a lower degree of certitude than we can find in some of the more abstract sciences like mathematics which doesn't deal with the same particularities of individual actions taking place amid a myriad of circumstances. And he just admits of that here. He then says one other thing, okay, that, that is worth reflecting on, uh, and that is why it takes a long time to become a well-rounded and educated judge of morality. And why, he says, in particular, that the young struggle to master moral science. Did anyone pick up on why it is that the young might struggle more than those who are more advanced in years in mastering moral science? Did anyone pick up on that? Okay, great. Uh, Teresa, go ahead. Yeah. Because they don't have as much input to be able to make a decision from. They haven't Ooh. had the experience of many different circumstances. To yeah, well done, Teresa. Very good. So uh, the young, young do not, they're not able, as, as you said very aptly, they're not able to draw from a trough of experiential wisdom. And so experiential wisdom is something that is going to be key to developing man in terms of his prudential wisdom 
in order to know how to act in every situation so that his decisions might be conducive to his thriving. Uh, and it takes a great deal of experience to be able to do that, okay? To be able to know how to joke well. Uh, with someone from France who is of a particular age is not how you joke with someone of the opposite sex who might be from the United States of a different age. And this, these kinds of consideration, the man of, of, of prudential wisdom always has to take into consideration. He's always having to adapt, okay, to have a kind of moral dexterity so that he can do and feel exactly as he ought, given the demands of circumstance. And it takes a long and built up, okay, breadth uh, and trough of experiential wisdom to be able to make all the right decisions in the right circumstances, to be able to profit from what you've done before, how you missed the mark or hit the mark in your actions, in your passions. Uh, and so we need experience. And this is how moral reflection is intimately connected to your life. We are going to be drawing from our experience in order to inform our moral decision makings. And the other challenge is an excessive influence of passion, uh, which can have a tendency, passion is not bad in itself, but has a tendency, it can at least, to cloud our reason, okay? So now we know a little bit of the teleological nature of his, of his act, of, of man, his action, how he acts, how he behaves. Uh, we know the, 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 the kind of certitude we can find, though we can find certainly truth that is transepical, transcultural, uh, we always have to constantly be referring back to acting, which is done by concrete individuals acting in a particular moment with a myriad of circumstances that influence them. And therefore, the kind of certitude we can find is not quite the same as the certitude we find in mathematics okay, or geometry. Uh, and, and we're going to have to derive from our experiential wisdom uh, and to free ourselves of passion in order to perform moral science as it ought to be performed. Okay. So that is what he says is a kind of preamble to this work. Okay, and now we're going to fly through uh, the different takeaways here from the various chapters of book one and then move then hopefully rather swiftly into book two. And we'll see how far we get. Uh, we can do more on book two uh, as we get into our discussion of the particular virtues next time. That won't be a problem. But let's just continue moving along. Okay, so he returns then, okay, in book four to the, where we left off, in search of whatever this highest good is. So he says the following, let us resume our inquiry and state, in view of the fact that all knowledge and every pursuit aims at some good, okay, so there's no action unless it aimed at some good. What it is that we all say political science aims at, and what is the highest of all goods achievable by action is what we are looking for. What is the highest good? And here he says, verbally, there is a very general agreement for both the general run of men and people of superior refinement say that happiness and living well and being well and being happy is what all men seek. OK, now where men differ, but with regard to what happiness is, that is where men differ and the many do not give the same account as the wise. So what is he saying? All men desire to thrive, okay? 
all men desire to function on all cylinders, to attain a state of, of total uh, happiness and thriving. We all desire that by nature, but it's only the wise that find it. Okay. Uh, and, and so we have to go in search of what the wise man has to say about what man's good is, what the highest good of man is. In chapter five, he goes through some potential options. Okay. Uh, he says, what, what is it that the vast majority, what he calls the vulgar type of man, he divides man into different classes around the goods that they affirm to be man's highest good. Okay. And by the way, the connection between goodness and happiness, I think we might take a moment to reflect on that. The connection between goodness and happiness is that you can only enjoy a perfect thriving if you enjoy a perfect good. And so any good that is lacking, any good that is both good but not good, obviously cannot give you that perfect happiness. And this is the kind of analysis that he'll perform when he finds out what happiness is not. It can't be wealth because wealth is a means to an end. It can't be, as we see here, the vulgar type of man has pleasure as a kind of good. Pleasure is fleeting. Okay. Sensual pleasure comes, it goes. It doesn't endure. It, enjoying kind of sensual pleasure it gives you some happiness for a time. But it's not a good that allows you to linger, to, to exist in a state of happiness and thriving. And so we might need to look for other goods, goods that give us a kind of enduring state of happiness. And so pleasure is what the majority of men think. And I think uh, are really throughout the years uh, and throughout different cultures and times, that seems to be what the majority of men pursue. Uh, the political men pursue honor, but he argues the third pursue what is called the contemplative life. Now, this is a theme that he'll come back to later, but what is a contemplative good is going to be something that he argues the wise will affirm to be the highest good. Okay, we'll have to come back to that. And so we get to, uh, by skipping a kind of digression that he makes in chapter six, the chapter that is probably the most important in all of books, uh, book one. It's the chapter where he takes time to define what the human good is, what human happiness is. He gives his answer and, and see if you buy it. See if you think this is in, in keeping with your experience of, of what end would actually make man thrive. Okay. So he begins chapter seven. Uh, by uh, reflecting on what this good would be like, okay? He says uh, right out of the gate uh, in chapter 7, surely it's that for the sake of which everything is done, okay? So this good is an ultimate good. It's what we do everything to ultimately find, okay? So there's a kind of finality about this good that it is worthy of pursuit, okay? It says a little bit later here, uh, a little bit, uh, a couple of um, paragraphs down. Now, it is worthy of pursuit that is more final, okay? And that which is worthy of pursuit uh, for the sake of something else is less final, okay? This good will be good without qualification because it's pursued not for the sake of anything, 
but everything is pursued for its sake. And therefore, it has the characteristic of being an end. And this is what happiness is. Uh, but as we've said, a lot of people disagree about whether it's in pleasure or wealth or fame or other goods. Aristotle is going to affirm here what he thinks it consists in. So it will be, as a characteristic, an end. It will have the characteristic of being final. And that's why we can probably write off money. Okay, Money is a good, but we don't desire money for its own sake. We desire it so we can buy stuff that we can enjoy. But whatever this good will have the sake of being something that is an end and not a means. Something else he mentions next is that this good will render a man self-sufficient. This good will make man self-sufficient. Well, what does that mean? It means that in enjoying this good, it by itself, without anything else, will satisfy man and his desire, okay, his, his ultimate kind of desires. He says the self-sufficient we now define is that which, when isolated, makes life desirable and lacking in nothing. And such we think happiness to be. So happiness is an end. It's something that is final. It is something desired above all things. And it's something that when isolated, whatever this good is, it will render us satisfied of itself. Okay. Now, how does he figure out what it is? Okay. He does so by asking this question. Whatever man's end is, is going to be his purpose. And therefore, it's going to be aligned with our analysis of what makes man to function. Whatever is this end, for the sake of which we act, is going to be associated with the very purpose of our nature. And a person who attains this good then would be not just a man, but a good man, because he has attained that which is the ultimate end and purpose of our nature. Okay, so, so what is he saying? He's saying something to this effect. We know a good knife by, by, by what, how do we discern what a good knife is? First of all, by discerning the purpose of a knife. Okay. When we look through the utensils in the utensil drawer, okay, uh, for a knife, we choose it because a knife performs a function that distinguishes it from every other knife, every other utensil, I'm sorry, in the drawer. And so we have to look at all material things and discern what is distinctive about man. What is his function? Because a good man, one that fulfills his purpose, will be that man who fulfills his function. Just as a good knife is one that fulfills the function of the knife, a good man who has attained his end will be the man okay, who fulfills his distinctive purpose in nature. Okay, so what is a good knife, ladies and gentlemen? What is a good knife? Okay, let, let, let's 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 get let's get involved here. Uh, what is a good knife? 
how do we know what a good knife is? Well, we have to know what the purpose of a knife is. And, and what is the purpose of the knife as a utensil that distinguishes it from a fork, that distinguishes it from a spoon? What sets a knife apart? It is a tool for someone besides Teresa. For what? Uh, great. Uh, but Peggy, what, what is a knife for? Slicing things. Yeah, yeah. Cutting. Yeah. A knife is for cutting. You know, a spoon is for scooping, uh, a fork is for stabbing. A good knife is one that cuts well. So the question is, what then is a good man? In order to, to figure out what, the, what a good man is, we have to understand what his purpose is. Now, the, the purpose of a knife, what sets it apart from all the other utensils in the utensil drawer is that it cuts. It's for, it's for cutting. And therefore, a good knife is the one that cuts well. And so what is it that sets man apart from all other natural material things? Mara, yeah, go ahead. To be with God. To be with God. Well, that, that does set him apart. Okay, yeah, but, but he, he's made for God maybe in a, in a unique way. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but, but, but how is it that man pursues God? Because man pursues God, you know, in, in a way that is very peculiar to him and to his nature. And what sets man apart? Yeah, down here, uh, Rebecca, go ahead. I would say by serving. By, by serving? Okay, by serving, by, by serving others, okay? There is a, a, a social nature to man, okay? There, we're getting somewhere there. Is man finds his fulfillment as a social animal. And so it's in serving others that man finds a kind of distinctive purpose. Good. What else, okay, can man do that nothing else in the material universe can do? Yeah, what, what is that? Okay, our, our right in the middle, I can't see your name, but, but our, our uh, right here, gentleman with the glasses and, and the collar. Go ahead. Yeah, please. Yeah, so I might be wrong, but would it be to serve the creator, such as the knife is designed to serve its creator? Yeah. We are made to serve our creator. Yeah, so, and, but how does man serve our creator in, in a way that's distinctive? And we serve him by fulfilling our own nature. And what is distinctive about human nature that sets us apart from animals, that sets us apart from plants, that sets us apart from all these other things? Do you know? Yeah. Thinking. Reason. I like this. Man alone among the natural things has the power to reason. Okay. Rebecca, uh, your family there. Rebecca, what were you going to add, sir? Also laughing. Yeah, laughing. Okay, his risibility. Yeah, that sets him apart. Okay. Now, his ability to laugh, though, is rooted in his ability to reason. Okay. Laughing is, a recog- is, a, is something that results from a recognition of incongruity. Mm-hmm. You know, we rationally are capable of recognizing a kind of incongruity. And this gives birth to this, 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 this thing we do, which is to laugh. Okay, but even laughing is rooted, you might say, in the fact that man is rational. That is what he brings to the table. Uh, Knives bring cutting to the table. Spoons bring scooping. Man brings to the table of of the material beings, the material universe, uniquely reason. And therefore, if a good knife is one that cuts well, what is going to be a good man? Yeah, Teresa. One who reasons well. One who reasons well, okay? 
And so that is going to be what an excellent and fulfilled man is. But it's a little bit more than that, though, right? Man who infuses a kind of rational order into everything he thinks, everything he wills, and even everything he feels. The man who is thriving and attaining a fulfillment and perfection of his nature will be one who orders, therefore, his intellect to truth, okay, uh, his highest power, okay, to, of, of his intellect and his will to truth, his will to the highest good, and infuses into his passions, which can be trained and influenced by reason, a kind of rational order. And so Aristotle is going to argue here in the coming pages that what a good man is, is again, one that thinks well, one that infuses, therefore, he, he pursues truth with his intellect, which is its object. He is one who uh, infuses a rational order. He chooses what is a rationally determined good. And because a good man is not becoming an angel, okay, becoming a rational thing, but a good man because man has an animality that is part of his nature. Uh, a good man is not in rejecting his animality but subordinating what is lower in him to what is higher. And therefore, just as a good knife is one that cuts well, a good man is one that fulfills the distinctive function of man, and that is to reason well and to infuse then into everything he does, everything he wills, everything that he feels, a kind of rational order. Now, how does he go about doing that? Aristotle gives his definition of the human good here. He says, the human good turns out to be an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And if there are more than one virtue, in accordance with the best and the most complete. So what does he mean? The human good, what man's thriving is, is to perform, as he says, to live essentially an active life of complete virtue, okay, uh, is what he associates with full human thriving, okay? Now, we're going to discover in, in the next chapter, uh, he's going to go into the very nature of virtue, okay? But we can introduce you to some of it here so that this makes even a little bit more sense. Virtues are habits. They are moral habits that dispose us to do what is good with ease, with pleasure, with regularity, and without a lot of arduous thought. Okay? Virtues, which are habits, make doing something easy, pleasurable. Okay? Uh, something that we can do with regularity and without a lot of arduous thought. And so this is why, okay, he associates it with man's chief good. Because it's only when we have habituated man to employ and to use his reason in everything he thinks, does, and feels, that man is able to easily, to pleasurably, and to regularly 
manifest his rationality in everything he does. And that's what it looks like for a man to function on all cylinders. Okay. It is to infuse into his powers habits. Okay. That allow those powers to achieve their end, achieve their own purpose, uh, and to manifest his rationality. Uh, and, and, and therefore the life that is going to be complete is going to be putting into man's different powers certain dispositions that become firmly rooted, making it easy and pleasurable to manifest his rationality at all times, okay? Uh, so that he can be a good man. And this is going to be more or less what he says a good human life is. Okay, and so it doesn't. And I'm going to fly through some of the last distinctions, at least in this book. The human good cannot, therefore, be an external good. Okay, external goods can be taken away. And this is why he says it's an activity of the soul. It can't be a bodily good because even bodily goods we can be deprived of. Okay, Uh, we can our bodies can be burned. Our bodies can be abused. Uh, and therefore, our happiness is not sufficient. It's not self-sufficient. But what self-sufficient happiness, a happiness that cannot be taken away from man, is going to be an activity of his soul, is going to be infusing into the powers of his soul a kind of rational order. And because, especially men's spiritual powers of intellect and will, where we can develop certain virtues, Because those are spiritual goods that reside in our soul and not in an external good and and a good of the body, they are inviolable. No external threat can attack and take away the virtue that lies within your soul. And therefore, your happiness lies within your control. The only person that can turn you from a life of virtue and a life of enjoying the truths that you're able to get from having intellectual virtue and the moral goods that you're able to enjoy by pursuing moral virtue, those are goods that you cannot be deprived of against your will. They are inviolably yours, okay? Because they belong to those faculties that no one can take from us. Uh, no one can violate your will. No one can violate your mind. People can persuade you to adopt air instead of truth. People can persuade you to will what is bad, but no one can violate those goods. And because of that, the goods that have lived in a life of clear virtue renders man self-sufficient in the sense that his happiness is his own and his happiness, he cannot be deprived of it. And as he goes into the subsequent chapters, we can see then that this is a good that man is able to enjoy even as his fortune changes. And as external goods and and bodily goods can be deprived of him, this good of living a life of complete virtue, which is the fulfillment of his nature, is some these goods of of, of these virtues that can can be kind of inhabit and take root in our soul are our own. And the happiness that comes from the possession of them and from the fulfillment of our rational nature 
as the virtues dispose us to manifest our, our rationality in everything we think, do, and feel, those goods we cannot be deprived of. And therefore, we become a thriving and good man by attaining that good which is most desirable, which is the fulfillment of our nature, and which renders us self-sufficiently pleased. And this, he says, is itself pleasurable. Okay, he says uh, in, 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 in memorably, and this is one of the last things I'll say in chapter 8, that to the person who loves virtue, for the lover of justice and in general virtuous acts, they are themselves pleasant. But also in the same way, just acts are pleasant to the lover of justice and in general virtuous acts to the lover of virtue. And so it is in living this life, okay, of perfect virtue, uh, that man fulfills his nature, okay, and enjoys these spiritual goods, okay, uh, the, the virtues themselves, okay, and, and the truths and goodness that, that exist in us because of this virtue, uh, is our own and something that we cannot be deprived of against our will, unlike External goods, which we can be taken from against our will, bodily goods, which are fleeting and can be taken of against our will. This good, the good of actively living a life of complete virtue, is both the fulfillment of our nature, a kind of final good, and something that renders us self-sufficient in our thriving. Okay, there we go with a first pass, okay, of his reflection on what human thriving looks like, okay? It's a lot to digest, okay? And I think if you take time to do the reading, take time to kind of uh, kind of read ahead and make sure we do the reading for the, for the next day, um, and we won't kind of go back and, and obviously introduce all the goals and method for the, for the next lesson, we can kind of dive right back in. I think eventually this is gonna start sticking, okay? It's gonna take time, it's gonna take repetition, uh, first, when I even took a philosophy class, I, you know, everything was over my head. Many things still are over my head. But the more you come back to it, uh, the more it starts to stick, the more we get a kind of order and are able to digest and remember and uh, understand, okay, what we're learning, okay? So there it is for our first pass uh, at his reflection on what human thriving is. Next time, we're going to look at virtue in general and then virtue in particular to look at what exactly virtue is that renders man thriving. Uh, and then what are the enemies of virtue? What are those vices that compromise man in his ability to manifest his rationality in everything he does? And so we'll find that every virtue, we find that all the virtues make easy and pleasurable the manifesting of our rationality. And also, as someone suggested with this whole notion of service, Every one of the virtues also perfects us in our social nature. Every one of these virtues makes us a better friend, makes us a better companion, makes us a better citizen, and every vice does the opposite. It makes us egocentric. It makes us turn in on ourselves and to become a worse citizen, a worse friend. Uh, a worse social companion. And so we'll see what those virtues are that allow us to manifest and perfect 
our function and our thriving, our rationality in everything we do, and to manifest the perfection of man also in his social nature, which is, as, as your insights uh, uh, proved, part of the very essence of the functioning of man that distinguishes him from all other material. Okay? Thank you so much, Dr. Wunsch. Uh, I, I really want to encourage you guys to come back again for part two, this idea of um, understanding the nature of virtue in general. For me personally, it's been something that's like, you, you know, every once in a while you, you hear something and you're like, whoa, I like half got that, but I already know that's something that's going to affect the way I view everything from here on out. And that um, nature of virtue has been one of those things that really is a beautiful concept and uh, will help connect so many different things, uh, not only within the natural realm of thought, but also in the spiritual realm as well. Agreed. And and I would say that for what it's worth, the most abstract part of his entire ethics is the beginning. And then it becomes more and more concrete, more and more down to earth. When he speaks about virtue in particular – uh, I think you'll really enjoy that. And then even the particular virtues himself. Okay. It really becomes something meaty, something digestible that will then make sense of, of some of the more general and big picture comments he makes at the outset of his episode. Excellent. We're going to start Q&A here and we'll start by clarifying a couple terms. So Two people are writing in. Uh, Peter's asking if you yeah. can define uh, the word good. And then Anne Ryan is asking, as you use the word man tonight, should, should, be, should she be interpreting that as like sort of a universal man, like yeah. this is for mankind? So the good is that which is desirable. Okay. So every time man acts, he acts for a good in the sense of something that is desirable. And so even when he does something that, that might be kind of counterintuitive and, and might, you know, from the outside look like uh, it is counterproductive and is counterproductive to his thriving, like even someone who takes their own life, they are acting for some appetible good. They're acting for the liberation of, of them from a life of suffering. Uh, they're acting for the liberation of, of certain anxieties. Uh, uh, the point that Aristotle and Aquinas and others would, would argue is that whenever man acts, he acts for a good in the sense of something that is desirable. Okay. Now, the relationship between a good and a moral good, okay, goes something like this. We always act for the sake of a good in the sense of that which is desirable, something that is desirable. When our response to the call of these simple goods is an ordered response in light of our nature and our end, that man is made for an end, okay, as as we've discussed here, an end is to live a life of complete virtue. And when our response to the call of some good, okay, is an ordered response that leads to our thriving, that is a morally good response. And when our response to a simple good, which is something that is desirable, when our response is something that leads us away from our thriving, that is what we call morally evil. It compromises man in his ability to thrive. Okay. 
And so that is not only what goods are, goods are in the sense, uh, these simple goods, that which is desirable. Uh, and they're related to moral goods. And moral goods uh, uh, in, imply an ordered response to the call of these simple goods uh, that beckon us to pursue them. Okay. And then man, we're, we're, he's using that just as, as a general universal uh, all-encompassing term that is relevant to, to homo sapiens, you know, the human species, okay? Uh, and so it's just a catch-all term uh, that refers to the nature of all human beings, uh, but isn't gender-specific, okay? Claude mm-hmm. is asking, how does Aristotle understand the soul? Mm-hmm. Uh, how is he using that term? How should we be uh, imagining it? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very, very good question. Uh, for him, when he uses the soul, at least in the rational soul, it would be the animating principle, okay, the principle that makes man to be what he is. So for him, the soul is, for him in his natural philosophy, the substantial form of man. It is that which makes him to be the kind of thing he is. And so it's the source of man's nature. And the explanation for how he's able to operate in all of the distinctive ways in which he operates. So the soul makes man to be what he is as a man. And it gives to him all the distinctive powers of operation okay, that he has because he has the particular soul that he has. Uh, and so he sees really the soul as that which makes man to be essentially the kind of thing he is as a man and not a dog okay uh as a, as a dog and, and and not a cat he says all different kinds of things have a substantial form that makes them to be what they are the substantial form that makes something to be alive is called a soul okay and he would say that even plants have what he calls a vegetative soul which doesn't render them immortal animals have a sensitive soul uh, and, and a soul is just a substantial form that makes them to be what it is, but it makes it also to be capable of certain kinds of acting. And then man has this rational soul that makes him to be a man and, and not a different kind of thing and gives to him certain distinctive modes of acting that are consistent with his nature. OK, and so that is what he understands as the soul. And so when he speaks of the intellect, it's a power of the soul, the will as a power of the soul. And in those powers, we we find the ability of man to acquire certain habits that allows him to use those powers more effectively. Uh, And and so we'll see how these these different powers are connected uh, to different powers of man's soul. Okay, so that is uh, it's kind of complicated. Uh, It actually implies a very deep philosophy of human nature. And and we get some of that. You can turn to the 13th chapter of book one, uh, where he reflects on the soul. Uh, Because of human happiness, humans are humans because they have this this soul that makes them to be the kind of substance they are. And it speaks here then of the powers of the soul. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and how then, you know, these different powers can with the right habits, uh, perform uh, the kinds of distinctive actions man is able to perform because he has those powers in the most artful and perfect manner. Okay. All right. Yeah, Teresa, go for it. I I have three questions. Great. Yeah, please. 
the first one and then if there's time I'll ask. Yeah, me. yeah, sure. So in the beginning yeah. of your talk, you mentioned yeah. how um with the degree of certitude that we can obtain and yes. ethics is small. Well, it's it's less than other things. Yeah. Right. We, yeah. we can never abstract entirely from place and time. That's correct. In order to be able to get the certitude. And I just had a question. Is, mm-hmm. is that why it's necessary in every time mm-hmm. and with every circumstance, like in, mm-hmm. in our modern day and time, to yeah. have an ability to assess the situation and yeah. And to be able to put like ethical morality mm-hmm. in place for our current generation. Yeah, yeah, and and that is a great question. <clears throat> that is a really well formulated question, and I think the answer is yes. Now, I, I want to be really careful here. We'll discover that his definition of virtue, that virtue is in part of its definition, is it's a mean relative to us. Now, this is something we are familiar with as Catholics. Okay. The virtuous mean of temperance on Easter is different than the virtuous mean of temperance on Good Friday. Okay? What does temperance look like on Good Friday? It looks like radical abstinence. What does it look like on Easter? It looks like feasting. And so clearly we admit of a degree of relativity, okay, in our moral life. However, this relativity is grounded in a kind of objective worldview that Aristotle embraces. So he thinks that man has a given nature and there are certain acts that are not going to help his nature thrive and other acts that are, and this would be likened to the natural law, you know, in, in Aquinas. And they, perf- they are like the playing field of, of, of a soccer field, the objective rules that nobody can break. But then how to play the game within that framework? It depends on who you are, who your teammates are, who you're playing against. Okay. The way for Braz- the Brazilians have great soccer players and they have this Samba style soccer where there's overlapping runs from the fullbacks. And, and, and because they're short, they keep the ball on the ground. Whereas the Germans score on set pieces. They use their superior height and strength and tactical expertise to be successful. And so they all play by the same rules that are binding on everyone in order to play the game well. And just like us, we need to play the game well. We, there's certain kind of actions and, and ways of comporting ourselves that are going to be universal across time and space. But then that's not enough. We have to respond given who we are, the times we're in the people we're playing the game with in order to act as we ought in the here and now. And therefore, it, you know, it's, it's great, you know, to, to know these ethical and, and, and general moral norms. And that is part of our background to have an informed conscience. But our conscience, as we'll talk about a little bit more later in our in terms of prudential wisdom, with all that background, it's then able to be free to make the kind of decisions that we need to make based on who we are. Because how to, like I said earlier, how to joke with one person is not how to joke with another. The degree of friendliness that you owe someone that you know well is different from the degree of friendliness you owe someone else. 
the, the degree of courage you need to face in, in a given situation is contingent on so many factors. Okay. And so then relating back to your question, yes, there are certain binding moral norms that, that do bind. And then we have though to make the universal truths of you know the church, etc. We have to make them palatable for people who live in a particular time, in a particular place. And we have to know those people, to know ourselves, and find a way to make them relevant within that framework. Okay. And, and that is something we all have to take into consideration. You know, uh, you have to know yourself. You know, to know what is the perfect mean in a given situation. And it's going to change when the people you're around change. Okay. Uh, the right way of acting towards my friend is not the right way to act towards your wife or towards your boss or towards a child. The right degree of friendliness is going to change in all those environments. Uh, your, your liberality, your desire to give and be generous is going to change depending on how much money you have. Uh, it's going to change based on so many prudential factors that are and that do have to take time and place into consideration. Okay, very good. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for being so generous with yeah. your time tonight, Dr. Wunsch. We appreciate it. Oh, yeah. No, and I'm sorry. I got to even go on. I, I, I'm trying to adjust to uh, usually, you know, we, uh, I take, uh, I don't know eight to 10 hours to cover even the section of text we cover, you know? So, so, so we walk through everything uh, so delicately and so and, and, and softly by all these examples. So it's, it's a lot to take in, but, but I'm warm into this and, and, and I'm really looking forward to discussing virtue with you next week. Uh, so uh, I hope you, I hope you come back. I, I really appreciate everyone and for your active participation. Uh, I, I'm, I'm honored by that and, and appreciate that. And hope to to see you back and to discuss virtue with you next week. Okay. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wunsch. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.